Thank you, Courtney, and thank you, music team, and thank you, congregation, for our time together in worship today. I want to invite you to take your Bible to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1 with me today. I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote. It's something that we come back to often. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. And it is to God's name that we gather to praise and to worship And I'm so thankful of how the Holy Spirit moves within our hearts, and I'm thankful for how He draws us in that way, grabbing a hold of our attention uh, so that we can worship Him. So 1 John is a series we launched in last week with entitled Prove It. We're looking at what John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He wrote to these churches to give them some clear instruction of avoiding the Gnosticism, the end of the first century teaching that had begun to really spread rapidly throughout the region. And so John is writing this letter with great passion to give heed and warning to these false teachings. What Gnosticism was trying to tell Christians was that Jesus Christ was never God in man form. So they were rejecting the incarnation of Christ therefore rejecting the deity of Christ. They did not believe that Jesus was God. And so this was a message that the false teachers were pumping out. And here's the the element that tried to set them aside from everybody else is that the Gnostics said that there was a, a certain level of understanding of divine truth that could only come to the spiritual elite and that common people or common believers or common listeners would not be able to grab a hold of that divine understanding. Well, we all understand that is not right because we study God's Word individually and God teaches us through the work of the Holy Spirit even within our own hearts. We gather in a setting like this to be fed and have that privilege and opportunity, but this is not the only meal that we can function with for the rest of our week or that we can make, make through in our spiritual journey. This is just one of the many elements. You studying God's word on your own, asking God for discernment and wisdom as you read, that is a part of how God teaches and works. And so the Gnostics would say none of this was true, and, and so John is going to be very deliberate in what he will say and what he'll write. Now we come after last week, and last week was really a moment where very difficult opening paragraph as John is getting right into the bulk of the content because he's saying that Jesus Christ is eternal, that his salvation is real, and that it can be experienced by mankind. Part of our worship together today were expressions, were words of of confirmation over those thoughts as well. And so John is getting now to this very uh, important part of talking about the guilt and conviction of our sin. So the whole bulk of verses 5 through 10 could be really summed up as, what is your mode of operation with sin in your life? Is it to confess it or is it to cover it up? And really that becomes a place where all of us have to, have to meet the facts we can all say, well, I'm going to always run to 1 John 1, 9. I'm going to confess those sins, deal with them. But often our mode of operation is that we cover them and we try to think it'll be fine until the next hurdle I have to face. And that's that whole guilt over confession. It's the guilt that we say, I'll just carry it until the next thing. I'll forget about it until the next thing. Confession says, I'm going to deal with it. I don't want it anymore. I take ownership of it. And I look at my sin as God looks at it. 
and I reject it, and I want no part of it. So in this crowd this morning, there's going to be two categories of people. There are going to be followers of Jesus Christ who you've given your life to him, to follow after him. You've submitted every part of who you are to the lordship of Jesus Christ as your savior. And with that, you have a personal relationship with him. But the fact is, and the harsh reality is, is that in a crowd like this, there may be and probably is someone here that has never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. Maybe you've grown up with the concept of of self-salvation. Maybe you are depending on your own good works. I mean, granted, you're here in church on Sunday morning. There's a bunch of different places you could be, but you have sacrificed and you have been in church today. And when the offering plate is passed, you're going to take yet another step of good works, and you are going to be that one that gives a $10,000 check to the building program, right? <laughs> I know who you are. And the reality is, is you're sitting there and you're thinking, yet another good thing that I will do in order to receive God's blessing in my life. And you're trying so desperately to do so many things to gratify your own conscience that you're missing out on Jesus Christ as the only way, truth, and life. And that no one can come unto the Father except through Him. And so John is going to reference some of these thoughts here in this passage. And as he's writing this letter, he's writing it to Christians. And he's giving them some deep thoughts to really grab a hold of if you're really walking with the Lord. We talked on Wednesday night about this renewal of our mind, this spiritual renewal. And if we're not actively involved in spiritual renewal then spiritual decline is inevitable. And so what does that spiritual renewal look like? What does it it entail? It is a part of us submitting to God each and every day. It's a part of us taking in who he is and allowing our life to live for him. It is intentionally making decisions and choices that would not show our love and loyalty to our flesh, but rather to our love and loyalty to the Savior. And so let's dig in here to 1 John chapter 1 and just look at verse 5 through 10 and see where John is going with this whole test of vital Christianity. In verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him, and we declare it unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This morning, I want to look at this passage of Scripture with a message entitled, Don't Deny It. Don't Deny It. Father, we need your wisdom this morning as we embark on this passage. Our hearts have been in tune to you today. The music has been done in a way that has has put our attention on you. And so, Father, now as we open your word, we open our hearts, our ears, we want to be attentive to the truth. Father, I come before you as your communicator today. I want so desperately to communicate your message. I want so desperately to communicate your truth. I don't want to go on rabbit trails or any elements of distraction that would take away from from non-believers hearing the truth of the gospel and followers of Jesus Christ taking steps of growth in their spiritual journey. 
And so we come before you and give you this time. And we'll praise you for what you'll accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. It's pretty clear that John was so passionate about proclaiming the truth of the Christian journey as he would write this letter. But I believe equally passionate about addressing the falsities that the teachers were trying to push onto these Christians and into these local churches. And so John is going to very adamantly address these issues. And in verse 5 through 10, we see two themes that really jump out. The first is that God is light. And the second is that he wants to see how do we respond to our sin. Now, if we could really say that a, a true test of one's salvation is going to be on the belief on the nature of who God is, not just a belief in God, but a belief of who God is, believing what he says. Because if you believe in God, you're like millions of others who are going to end up in hell without a personal relationship with his son, Jesus. But if you say, I believe what God has said, well, then you know that God has said so clearly throughout his word that his son, Jesus Christ, is the redemptive plan that he is the substitute on our behalf to pay for our sins so that we might have eternal life. And so there's now going to say, where is my belief in God or belief of God or believing God? And we really want to hammer home the fact of believing God of what he said. Now, John will take some time to discuss these doctrinal tests to to determine who is really genuinely saved. Remember, the whole series of John is entitled, Prove It. And so we need to see what are the tests to help determine, am I really a Christian? Am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? In verse number five, we see the foundation for Christian fellowship. He says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declared unto you that God is light. So the foundation for our Christian partnership, our, our Christian connection, our Christian fellowship, let's, let's not get geared away on the word fellowship right from the very beginning. Oftentimes we see the word fellowship as a, a gathering term. Come to the event for food, fun, and fellowship. And we're like, yeah, that's where I want to be. And, and so we get this skewed idea of what fellowship is. The word fellowship is that partnership. That's where we always come back to with our word connection. And it is the body of Christ fellowshipping, partnering together for the work of the ministry. So it's, it's really shoulder to shoulder, moving forward in a unified heart in the same direction. And that doesn't mean everything has to be seen through the same set of eyes. Here, give me your glasses so that I can believe everything um, and, and see everything the way you do. no. We're unified on the gospel, we're unified on the name of Jesus Christ, and God is our creator and sovereign father. But there's so many things that as we fellowship together and partner together for the cause, that we may do some things a little bit differently from one another that doesn't go against biblical principles. But so this fellowship is really important from the, the crux of what he's teaching here. This is the key support to really the rest of the letter that he's going to write. You see in verse 6 and 7, he uses that word that if we say that we have fellowship, partnership, connection with him, God, but yet we walk in darkness, well, we lie. He comes again with the word fellowship in verse 7. He says, if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, well, then we do have fellowship, connection with one another, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, of God, who covers our sins. So, when we are saved, 
we become a child of God and we become a, a child of light. Uh, throughout the scriptures, that, that lesson is reminded to us, that truth. When we were saved, God called us out of darkness into light. You remember Second Peter, or excuse me, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Aren't you thankful that you were called out of darkness and into marvelous light? to live as a part of who he is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, we're the children of light. It says, you are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. James chapter 3, those who do wrong, they hate the light. In the words of Jesus from John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. That's Jesus. He came into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Remember, there were many still who watched Jesus perform miracles and heard him teach his parables and heard the doctrinal truth he taught, yet hearing those things and experiencing the light, they hated it because they'd rather live in darkness. And then in, when light shines in us, it, it reveals the true nature of who we are. Ephesians chapter 5 for you were sometimes darkness, or you once were darkness. Remember, before God called us to himself and rescued us from darkness into marvelous light, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, you, were, you used to be in darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship, have no partnership, have no connection with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Verse 13, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whosoever or whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So here we would say that this foundation, God is light. Not only is God a light, but God is light, just like God is love. And so this is a crucial part of the children of God. Do you hate light? Would you rather be in darkness? That is a life that is being lived in the concealing, concealment of your sin. And so as a Christian, we have to be aware of this so that the light might bring to manifest what is being done. Now, light produces life, light produces growth, it produces beauty. And in verse number five, he says, then this is the message which we have heard of him. Unlike the speculative claims of the Gnostics, this is a message that is true, it is abiding, and is received directly from God himself. That's what makes this real and important. And that's why John is proclaiming this so passionately. Now, the transition here from verse 5 to 6 is that not only do we see the foundation of our Christian fellowship, that's all God is, light, and in him is no darkness at all. But now we would see these obstructions of the Christian fellowship, these obstacles, these hurdles. And it is one word, it is denial. This obstruction to Christian fellowship is denial. Now, it was Mark Twain who said, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Well, thank you, Mark. <laughs> denial is the action or statement of declaring something to be untrue. 
And, and, and so someone once said, well, denying the truth doesn't change the facts. And then someone responds, well, I'm not in denial. I'm just selective with the realities that I accept. <laughs> so we might fall into that trap. I'm not in denial. I'm just being very selective with the realities I'm willing to accept. Yeah, that's denial. So here we would find that this obstruction is all birthed out of denial. Um, John deals with these three obstructions here in these following verses. These are obstructions to the Christian fellowship. And we experience them unless we're intentional about spiritual renewal. And some are experiencing it today because you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So these denials, though you may not stand in front of a crowd and say, I am there, I deny this, I deny this, and I deny this, you're being very selective in the realities that you are willing to claim. That's what happens to a lost and dying world because they do want to take a little dose of religion so that they can wear it as a label. They want to be able to take a little dose of God so that they can feel a little better about themselves. But the harsh reality with a lost and dying world is that if they don't take all of who God is and his promise and his claims, they're being very selective on the actual realities and therefore they're missing the whole boat. And so these denials, John is going to give us really a claim of this denial. He'll then follow it up with the actuality and then the modification. Now John uses this word we in verse number six, and he's going to use that all throughout these verses. What I love about that word is it's inclusive. It's embracing himself and his readers, but also the false teachers. So he is saying to the reader, hey, you use diagnostics test to see if these false teachers are being labeled by these accusations, these false claims, and then the actuality that's taking place. Sir, ma'am, as we wander through the next few moments through this part of the passage, my prayer would be that you would find yourself in a self-evaluation that says, where do I stand with these thoughts? The first one in verse number six, here's the claim. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, wow, the claim is pretty bold. Like you're saying, well, I have a connection with God. But here's the denial of the significance of our sin. John hints at the difference between empty statements and noticeable realities. Here's a, here's a bold statement, really an empty statement, when there are going to have to be noticeable realities which give you the proof. That's how we function in life. To say that we have fellowship with God is a, a great matter, but to say that we have it is totally different from exhibiting it or living it. Let me give you an illustration. I can say that I love my wife, Natalie. And I can proclaim that to a crowd like this this morning. I can say, that I really love my wife. And I can say that verbally. And that would be my claim. But the actuality is going to come with the noticeable reality by the actions I put to that. So for instance, do I, do I spend time with her? If I say that I love her, I'm going to want to spend time with her. Now, I don't want to spend every waking moment with her just like you don't want to spend every waking moment with somebody in your life. 
I don't mind a little break at times, right? But I'm not looking for an eight-day break, okay? I'm, I still want to be with her. I want to experience the fun of life, the joys of life, the laughter, the memories, the heartaches, the, 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 the pains, and all of that. So am I willing to spend time with her? Do I adore her? Do I affirm her? Do I give for her, give of myself? Do I give sacrificially for her? Do I speak highly of her? Do I trust her? I could say to a group of young couples as we hang out and have pizza together, and I say, oh, I love Natalie. Oh, I love her. But then as we're in conversation, I use words to tear her down in front of other people. Or she says, hey, I'm, I'm all out of drink. Could you give me some more? Get up yourself, woman. Go get yourself a drink. While you're up, get me some. All right? Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's what my husband says. <laughs> all right. We got another problem on our hand, okay? So here's the truth and reality. Again, it's, it's not what I say in proclamations. It, it's what you see in action. And so this is the same way with God. Here's the significance, the denial of the significance of our sin, because we would say, oh, I'm, I'm in fellowship with God, love God, but there's no part of who we are that shows that. There's no regular patterns in our life that is, is showing clear evidence of our connection and fellowship with God. Here's the actuality in the latter part of that verse. He says, here's the claim. We say that we have fellowship with God, but here's the actuality. We walk in darkness and we lie and do not the truth. So the actuality is we say we have fellowship and connection with God, but we're walking in darkness. We'd rather love darkness than light. Abraham Lincoln said, if a man is going to be a liar, he had better have a good memory. And here is a moment where we're saying, I have fellowship and connection with God, but you're lying straight through your teeth, or you're even deceiving your own self in your mind. John warns us that our actions will speak much louder than our words will ever be heard. We want others to think that we're, we're spiritual, and so we lie about our lives, and we try to make good impressions on them. We try to put forth a good uh, picture and a, a good um, uh, what people can see on a given Sunday or maybe on Facebook or maybe in other places in conversation. We want people to think we're spiritual. We want people to think we have this fellowship and connection to God. We want people to think we're walking in the light. But every bit of our heart is so carnal. And every part of our desires and our passions is separated from God. You see, Jeremiah 17, 9 puts it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Like, that's our own heart. Our heart deceives us. It tricks us. In verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of of his doings, to the evidence of his doings. So don't trust your own heart. If I trust my own heart to live out some feeling and emotion of love to my wife, it will fail me almost every time. Because there's times of a call to sacrifice. There are times the call of humility. There are times of call of choosing to love her. And so if I just trust my heart, I'm just banking on my emotions and my feelings and hoping that that will somehow guide me to where I need to be. That's not how it works. 
intentional renewal with God says, I need your work in my mind. I need your work in my heart. I need you to help me to see past the wickedness of my own heart so that I might bear fruit or evidence of my love for you. In verse number seven, he gives the cure or the modification. And it's this in verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, well then yeah, we have fellowship. We have fellowship horizontally with one another, and then vertically, we have this, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleansing us from sin. So the cure is walking in the light, not making some claim, but actually walking in the light. This phrase cleanses us from all sin. It's declaring the impact of his blood as being continuous and comprehensive. The blood of Jesus Christ is continuous and comprehensive. Let me explain. In this language here, the Greek language gives us the present tense of the word cleanses us. And this tells us that it keeps on cleansing and it shows us its ability to do what nothing else can do. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It was the power in the blood that washed our sins, that covered our sins. It's the heart that is deceived and becomes pure because of the blood. It's the heart that is carnal but is changed by the blood of Christ. Now, while the phrase from all sin points to every act of sin that occurs while the believers walk in the light, it gives us this whole comprehensive issue. The continual aspect is it cleanses us, present tense, a continual act of cleansing us. Then there is the comprehensive issue that says from all of our sin. I wish the day we got saved, we were done with sinning. Anybody like that? You just kind of take that vote. Let's do it, all right? It just doesn't happen that way. The progressive sanctification tells us that justification happened, and I'm so thankful that Jesus died for my sins, was buried in the tomb as evidence of his death, but came back to life, and he has offered salvation to all mankind. That's because God the Father loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't come to give condemnation to the world. He came so that we might have life and that we might live it more abundantly. Jesus calls for us to live a life that can be more fruitful, a life that can be so fulfilling, the life that doesn't have to have all the tricks and trinkets and all of the, the things of this world that is offered to us, but rather the things that come from above. That's why Paul said, set your affections, your attention, and your passions on things above, and don't be so consumed with the things on earth. And so this denial helps me to see that I can, I can be cleansed from my sin, and that's going to be a continuous action for my growth process in Jesus Christ, but it's also going to be this comprehensive. There is nothing that has not been washed by his blood. It is sin past, present, and future. And don't get bogged down with this mindset that some guys are trying to teach that says, if you die today with unconfessed sin, you just hang on for the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be on the big screen TV, and we'll all watch that day. Ah, that's taking the scriptures all whacked out of context. That's not what will happen. The reality is, is our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. There's no unconfessed sin that's going to be thrown back in our face. But the harsh reality today is that our known sin in our life causes a major disruption in our relationship with God. It causes this major barrier 
And we wonder if he hears our prayers. We wonder if he, if he will bless. We wonder where we are in that standing. Alfred Plummer said, one who lives in the light knows his own frailty and is continually availing himself of the purifying power of Christ's sacrificial death. Remember, a gospel-centered life is all focused on the cross and what Jesus did. The event of the cross happened almost 2,000 years ago, and it can't be just some historical event that we say, I'm glad it happened because now I can live my life. But it is something that we continually come back to with our hearts and our passion because of what Jesus did for us. There's the second denial. That's the denial of the sinfulness of man. Look at verse number eight. Here's the claim right away. He says, if we say that we have no sin, there's a claim. Now, here's another claim that hinders fellowship, and it's really a major obstruction. It's a major obstacle to true fellowship or partnership with God. It expresses the claim of the false teachers that they have advanced to a stage beyond human sinfulness. Remember the spiritual elite. The spiritual elite were the only ones who could hear the divine message from above. The rest of the peasants, the rest of the sinners would not ever achieve that knowledge. And so here they were claiming to have some ability to deny that there was even a sinfulness of man. Now, whenever someone denies sin as an ongoing reality, there follows a denial of the responsibility of someone's actions. Aren't we living in a culture now where that's happening more and more often? Too often. We need to go back to an episode of Andy Griffith that I watched last night with just like a three-minute segment where Opie admitted to breaking Mrs. Brown's window with his ball. And Andy said, well, I'm not mad at you, but you won't get any allowance until the window's paid for. And Opie, who wouldn't want an Opie as a son, right? He's like, yes, sir. Yes, Pa. And he wanders away until a listening ear from somebody else says, boy, don't you think you're harsh on your little son? He said, if he doesn't learn now to stand on his two feet and take responsibility for something he has done, though it little now will get bigger and bigger and bigger until something bad could happen. So the reality of that is, thank you, Andy Griffith. We probably should listen to him for the rest of the day. But (laughs) the reality for all of us is that we need to take ownership. We need to take responsibility. Parents, don't don't let your kids uh, get away without taking ownership and responsibility for what they've done. Because here we're showing a picture of God's justice and God's grace. And too often, we just want to douse our kids with grace. Ah! Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Mrs. Brown, she yells at you kids anyway. She deserved that window to be broken, right? And all of a sudden, we're developing a mind that is not going to find the harsh reality of how God keeps us responsible for our own actions. And so we have to know that the sinfulness of man is real. And the actuality in verse number 8, he says, yeah, if you claim, uh, verse number 8, that you have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is, it's not in us. So this self-deception involves refusal to allow the truth as a place in your inner being. And this is a kind of self-deception that is possible only through a willful rejection of truth. This is saying that the evidence is clear concerning who I am and the fallen humanness of my being. And yet I'm still willing and wanting to reject that. So here's the cure. The modification in verse number nine, 
He says, opposite of that, if we do confess our sin. Now remember, 1 John 1, 9 is written to Christians. Paul is penning the words to the churches all through Asia Minor. And he's writing this to people who have been transformed. And he's saying, cleanseth us. And he's using these words to help us to remember of this change that happens in Christ. So the modification, the cure is confession. And it means more than just to admit or take ownership. That's an important part of the admission is taking ownership that I've done wrong. But the word confess actually means to say the same thing about it. So to confess our sin means that we're willing to say the same thing as God does about our sin. So confession is not just some lovely prayer or some spiritual excuse that we want to make in our uh, self-righteousness. It's not trying to impress God or other Christians. Confession is a time of ownership and saying the same thing that God says, and it comes out of a contrite heart, a true penitent spirit that says, I want to be different. And then the verse tells us that God is, is faithful to fulfill his promise of mercy and and, and, and forgiveness to a repentant sinner. So he is also righteous in the way that he deals with the confessing sinner. I love that thought here in verse number nine. His attributes of mercy and justice find their perfect reconciliation in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to dig into that next week in chapter two. If you want to look ahead, he says to my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation. He is the substitute. He is the one who has come in for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we can't deny the sinfulness of man. You are good people, good-looking people, and phenomenal givers in just a few moments when it comes to this offering. And so we all have what's good about us. But the reality is, is that the very core of who we are as man, we're just sinful. Verse number 10 ends with the denial of the practice of sin. The claim in verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned. Well, this claim goes a step further from number two, because this is now a denial that man does not even commit sin. And you may say in here, I know I'm a rascal. So I know I'm a sinner, but by you choosing not to do anything about your sin, by you choosing not to confess your sin, by you choosing not to claim the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you're denying the very fact that you practice sin. Because now you're saying that though I'm a rascal and I've got sin in my life, you're saying that there's not a punishment for that sin? So what you're doing then is, as he says, the actuality is you're calling God a liar. You make him a liar. And and he says then that the word is not in us. The claim is blatant denial of God in his word. Think of Romans 3.10, for it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God. So the depravity of man is recorded all throughout the Old and New Testament. You cannot turn anywhere and avoid the actual reality of the depravity of man. And because of where we stand in eternity for that reason, that's why we have to not deny it any longer. We need Jesus as our Savior. So John announced a double verdict on this blatant claim. He says we make God a liar 
and his word is not in us. When we say we make him a liar, it literally means a liar we make him to be. Now, there was pretty bold statements about the devil, the enemy, being the liar and the father of it, John 8, 44. I don't dare want to put God in that same reference to Satan, the enemy of God, as the liar and the father of it. Such a person openly brands God's testimony of Romans 3.23 as just being a deliberate lie of God. It's all a sham. It's all trickery. It's all just developed to find hook, line, and sinker followers to go after some another religion. If that's your thought today, you've been blinded by the enemy. Because the truth is, is the personal relationship in Jesus gives us victory over being messy rascals. And it gives us the ability to find grace in God. So unlike the two previous false claims that we studied this morning, this third one that you see in verse 10, John offers no remedy. It's pretty brutal. For such a willful rebellion against God and his word, there's no remedy. My fear today is that there may be some who you've been given the opportunity to clearly hear the gospel and the truth of God's love, yet you continually reject it because of maybe pride or maybe high intellectual knowledge. What that boils down to is just self-satisfaction and self-salvation. And so you're banking on your own. And you may say, well, what if none of this is real? And what if you find out in the other side that it, it just doesn't happen that way? I would still be so grateful of my belief in God and his son, Jesus Christ, because that has transformed my life here on earth. I live with great hope. I don't live in fear. I don't live in guilt or regret. I come to the fact and realities that John says, and I can't deny the sinfulness of man. I can't deny the practice of sin. I can't deny any of those aspects. But what I can come to grips with are the remedies that say, if I confess, he's faithful and just to forgive. I can have partnership and fellowship with other believers, and that brings fulfillment and joy in my life. And then I also have received in this vertical relationship with God, that his, sin, his blood covers my sins. And so I don't have any history, dark stories, yeah, messed up decisions, a ton. But I don't have to live in fear and regret of any of that because Jesus forgave me. And so now my victory is being lived in him. And that's great assurance. So today I, I give a plea to the Christians who are here, don't deny it. Don't cover it, grab a hold of it, take ownership of it, confess it, partner with God to say about your sin what he says it to be, and then work through it. That's renewal of the spiritual life. And to those who do not have a faith in Jesus Christ, have not experienced a personal relationship with him, I invite you today, would you be willing to at least have some more conversation? Or be, would you be willing, there's something maybe stirring in your own mind and heart right now, and you're like, what is this? It's the Holy Spirit working that says, this is the real deal. Follow after me. To all of us, let's live a life honoring and glorifying to God. Don't 
deny it. 